Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Your generation of young women have been a total inspiration to me because, you know, my generation of women went through their working life with the tampon shoved up their sleeve to go to the loo, even in all female offices. And, you know, then your generation of women are like, fuck that, you know, yeah, we have periods, look, here's the blood. And, and that really made me think, do you know what, when those young women approach menopause, provided they're not blindsided in the way we were, it's gonna be a whole other ball game. Welcome to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling and science to better understand our relationship with our bodies. I'm Honey Ross. And I'm Nadia Craddock. And this is season four. Ready? Ready. <laughs> Three, Three, two, two one. one. Hi, Hi body protesters. protesters. That was good. That was actually quite good. That was good. Okay. I think we're getting there. Just... You were looking Stared out the window. Me. No, I thought you had to look like <laughs> off into the distance. <laughs> You know what? It, it does is. always make me feel in a great mood when we open like that. Like it, pe- it peps me right up, and it makes me feel like we are connected. You know, it gets, yes, it's connected. We're we're on Zoom, obviously. And are we ever not going to be on Zoom? But it, yes, you're right. It does. It does build a connection, and it feels nice. It's definitely. It's a good. We're in the game. We're, we're in, in the, the game. game. We have. That's how we know it's business time. Um, it's how business time. Are you today, sweet Nadia? Well, I'm very well. I think we probably sh- should say that we have done a little Christmas holiday gift to ourselves mm-hmm. and we are recording this pre-holidays. Yes, so the it may be. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so we don't have work to do as soon as we get back. So I am very well just trying to get to holiday season like I'm just trying to get over that line so I can relax so this is actually going to be fun to listen back to and I'm going to be like oh like she did oh. that <laughs> yeah Rita she got to the freedom I know, I know. <laughs> she made it she made she it made it, she made it. no I think yeah I am very much on that same wavelength of like so desperate to get my work done before Christmas so I can actually rest I know it's going to be so weird listening to this in the new year like happy new year but like <laughs> This was our reality mere weeks before this was airing. So, you know, it's it's real. Mm. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? Have you even thought about that? Like, do you, do you still think in that, like, mindset of, like, New Year? I think, 
No, you know, I think I resigned myself to not be a resolutions person a while ago because I think I I didn't like the concept that I was constantly a work in progress. Like, I was like, surely there's yeah. got to be a point where I'm like, I'm pretty, you know, I'm not desperate to change a major facet of myself every single year. So I used to be like, New Year, same me. Like, but obviously everyone grows and changes. I think my resolution is probably like, oh, maybe socialise a bit more, maybe be a bit tidier. Like, th- little things mm. like that that I'm like, I could be a bit tidier, I could maybe, like, call my grandma more, things like that, where I'm like, I just want to, like, be a more well-rounded person in the new year. What about you? I love that. I The, the tidy thing, what I have realised about myself is that I do, like, all or nothing when mm-hmm. it comes to tidying. I'm the same. Oh, my God, yes. And part of me is like, well, maybe, maybe we just stick with that, but part of me is like, if I just did 10 minutes every day... That's what they say. That's what people say. <laughs> it's meant to do it. No, I'm either like, I'm living That's in like I a know. cesspit or a pristine location. And like, I will clean like... But during the pandemic, we are still in the pandemic, but during the height of the pandemic, the lockdowns, like, you know how obsessive I was with my cleaning. And I remember even like, before I got with my boyfriend telling him like, yeah, my one problem is I'm just too clean. And now I'm like, all of the cleaning habits that I'd picked up during the lockdowns when I had endless time, it's just out the fucking window. It's really hard. But look, let's try 10 minutes a day. I think we can both try 10 minutes a day of cleaning as a resolution. Why not? I think let's go for it. Let's but... shake on it. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, we're saying Deal. this now. <laughs> shake, you're shaken. <laughs> no. Shaken, not stirred. Oh, dear. Oh, gosh, that was silly. I'm in a silly mood today. <laughs> like I say that every single week. I know, I think it's, it's, it's the build-up of everything. It's the build-up of everything. Yeah, when we finally get to see each other after, like, a hard day, it's like, whew, like, it is. It, it brings out the silly in us. If you are, maybe not so much a resolution, but maybe a little New Year's treat, a little New Year's pick-me-up, we have got uh, our Patreon is brimming with incredible exclusive content, academic papers, exclusive conversations with us, which we definitely share way too much. Like, I was like... I'm going to get arrested. No, I'm not arrested. <laughs> I was like, I am going to definitely get called out for some of the uh, tea we're spilling. But please join us on the Patreon. It is a great time. It costs the same as a coffee. Less than a coffee, actually. Less than a Starbucks coffee. Probably more, same as a cafe, I'd say. <laughs> uh, so please join us on the Patreon. We are having a great time over there. And the podcast can't continue um, without it. So please, you know, join us. And yeah, let's get to the episode today. So I am so excited about today's guest. Wanted to speak to her for so long. We could have spoken to her for so much longer. There were so many other questions and things that we could have like really delved into. So we speak to Sam Baker, who is a journalist, a writer, has done lots of other things, has a really interesting career path. She has a podcast called The Shift. So I started listening to that podcast during... Might have been the first lockdown. I can't remember. First or second, but definitely one of the lockdowns. It's been a while since I found a new podcast that I've really enjoyed. But that is, that's what the shift has become for me. And we'll hear more about it as we go through the conversation. But we talk about menopause. We talk about Sam's career as an editor for women's magazines. She's very open. I did feel a little bit bad at one point for like putting her in the hot seat. But it was a different time, I think. Yeah. And then it's just very interesting to hear someone reflect back 
to what that was like. She was so incredibly generous with her answers, though. And like, I, you know, it was it was just a really wonderful conversation. I yeah. At the end of the episode, we both were like, OK, our new best friend. Like we would love to <laughs> formally be best friends with Sam <laughs> Baker. She's unbelievable. But no, I think you asked a hard question, but she answered really powerfully and beautifully. And that's the thing, you know, it's it's that reflection. Yeah, and so so candidly and with so much nuance as mm-hmm. well. It's like, this is not, these are not easy, easy things. And I think, I mean, can you imagine like someone asking you, tell me about something you did like 15 years yeah, ago. She was like, your career. I like the decisions you made with work on how terrifying that would be. But to be honest, I'm sure someone will be doing that to us one day. I'm like, oh my gosh, I better stop thinking of our answers. I know. <laughs> my God. Oh dear, but yeah. It's she's scary she's brilliant. She's brilliant. So very excited for you to listen to the episode. And stay tuned for a little knowledge noodle on body image and eating disorders in mid and later life. Sam, thank you so much for joining us on The Body Protest. Really happy to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be asked. I feel in hallowed company. Oh, gorgeous. Well, Sam, I wonder if we can start. We'd like to have a little intro from our our guests. If you could do a little intro to yourself. Oh, God, this is where I, I won't be able to do it. On the spot. So I'm Sam Baker. I am a journalist and broadcaster and novelist. Um, I was formerly editor of Just 17, Cosmopolitan, Red. Um, I co-founded The Pool with Lauren Laverne and I am the creator of The Shift podcast, which is all about talking to women over 40 about how brilliant they are. Oh, that was gorgeous. You did that right off the bat. That was... Oh, that was cool. You've got a voice like velvet, Sam. I mean... Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we do enjoy hearing your voice. So, Sam, one of the questions we love to ask all of our guests is how are you feeling now? How are you feeling in your body right now? Oh, um, well, because I've had COVID for four weeks, I feel really weak and weedy, actually. And um, if you'd asked me that question six weeks ago, which is probably when we should have been recording this podcast, if I wasn't inefficient, um, the answer would have been completely different. I would have been, yeah, I feel strong and positive and, you know, I actually feel quite comfortable in my body. But right now, like I said to you before we started recording, COVID has made me feel just weak. I'm sorry, it's a very intense thing to go through, COVID. It puts so much strain on the body. I mean, I know that's not a hot take in any way, but I'm, I'm very <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Thank you for joining us Oh, oh no, COVID. no, not at all. I mean, this is not about COVID at all. It's just that, you know, it just re- that really made me think right now, it has it has made me feel different which is, you know, I'm hoping that will be gone in a couple of weeks. Everything crossed. Yeah, everything crossed for you. And I think it does it does highlight that point that body image is so transient, how we feel in and about our bodies shifts over time and that can be influenced by so many different things. So, yeah, and I, I like the, the contrast with what it may have been like six weeks ago. And kind of speaking of that transient nature of body image, I'd love if we could go back to the to the past and I would love if you could tell us a bit about what your relationship uh, was like with your body growing up. Um, I think I am a real product of the age that I grew up in. So um, I'm 55. I was born in 1966. Um, and so I, I kind of grew up in the 70s and was a teenager in the 80s. And, you know, it was F-plan diet. It was um, 
Slimming World calorie counter in the junk drawer in the kitchen. My mum, absolutely love her. She was always on a diet, always. You know, it was the era of the kind of special K ad with the woman in the... You guys are much too young to remember this. The woman in the red swimsuit looking fabulous if you just ate oh, special K. I, I really remember, remember that. that. <laughs> no, she haunted my childhood. <laughs> no, I remember going guys, can I get special K to my parents? And they were like, oh, no. So anyway, yes, I, I yeah. remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, even evolved parents still couldn't stop you doing that. And I think I absorbed those messages really, really young, really young. So I think certainly, I don't even know, I, mu- I must have been at school, but I, I was what the Americans call husky. I wasn't a fat child, but I was... I was a chunky child and I was very aware of that from a very young age. I mean, I hated wearing, I mean, I live in jeans now, but as a child, for instance, I hated wearing jeans because I thought I had a big bottom. I mean, you know, where does that come from? You know, in short, I think I had a fucked up relationship with my body from very small. And I don't know whether that came from TV, whether it came from school, whether, you know, it came from the messages that I absorbed through my mum's relationship with eating, but I definitely felt that my body wasn't right, which was compounded by the fact that I was a little ginger in, um, I mean, I now live in Edinburgh, which is full of gingers, so I'm in my spiritual (laughs) home, but I was a little ginger in um, a small town Hampshire, and not to make any comparison at all, but there were as many gingers in my school as there were black children, which is to say one. So, you know, I felt from a very early age that I didn't look right. I didn't fit the norm. And that that was because I thought I had a big bottom. It was because I was ginger. It was because I was freckly. I wasn't cute. You know, all of those things. So I absorbed that as, as a young child. And then I carried that right the way through until very recently, actually. So a good 40 years of my life, I carried that message with me. And what was the shift for you? I think we're going to be overusing your your shift. Yeah, term. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> but what what was that? What was that turning point for you? Oh God! Well, there were lots. You know, there were lots of of tipping points. But I think, and this is not to say that I feel like oh now I'm postmenopausal. I'm all evolved, and you know, and I've got you know I'm completely at ease with everything. But I definitely think that that period of time that going through perimenopause, which is actually the nadir. I mean, it is in terms of body image, it was as bad as being 15. But post that, I I definitely feel that I started to come to terms with that. Now, whether that's because you just reach a point where you're like, oh, well, this is is it. And like, life is truly too short. Mm -hmm. But there are also, there are lots of other, there are lots of things going on. And I think one of the things that really interests me about menopause, and, you know, it wasn't just me or the experience of the women that I spoke to, is that, um, you know, the incidence of women developing or redeveloping eating disorders in their, when they become perimenopausal, is, is really high. You know, um, I haven't got the statistics to hand, mm-hmm. which is very inefficient of me. But, you know, whether or not you had a disordered relationship with food and eating in your teens, you are likely, much more likely to redevelop that in your late 40s and 50s. And that's borne out by stats both in the States and here, but probably is a Western thing. Mm. I think it speaks to, it's that it's a point of pressure and period of transition where there is that you just are more vulnerable. 
and so your body is changing so it it is changing i think as you're getting older you you are moving away from what society is expecting of women but i think it's interesting like even referencing the research because to me looking at when you have a look at what research is out there there is so much on adolescence there is a bit on post pregnancy and then there is this tiny tiny sliver on yeah. um on menopause um and that that may be changing but it's interesting to even acknowledge that when we're thinking about all of these issues and then when we're thinking about what do we do in terms of intervention because we develop these beautiful school based interventions which is part of my job and my world and there's that but what are we doing for people who are in their 40s 50s 60s plus you know, it's interesting you compare it to like, it feels like being 15 again, because so often it is referred to as a kind of second puberty. And it's like, imagine if we were making teenagers do that on their own, you know, it feels so wild. And e- even you saying, talking to women over 40 and hearing how brilliant they are, we don't hear those voices. We don't hear enough of that. And it's like, that slither is the problem because there are boundless, wonderful women over 40 with incredible stories and experience that younger women could massively benefit from hearing, which is why what you do is so important. Would you be able to tell us a bit about what happens to women during menopause? Oh, God. <laughs> I know yeah. it's a big one. <laughs> I mean, I think, like like you were saying, it's, it, you know, casting your mind back, my mind, casting my mind along way, to adolescence, when it's all that you feel, I certainly felt like a, everything was spiralling out of control. And menopause, perimenopause is exactly like that. But compounded with that is the fact that certainly until very recently and... People do seem to be starting to talk about it a bit more now, but I'm worried that that's a, a trend and it will just pass. Is that you're kind of blindsided, but I mean, nobody is blindsided by adolescence. You know, everybody knows it's coming. And like, as you say, you're reasonably, if you're if you're lucky and reasonably privileged, you're pretty well looked after or, you know, you know what to expect and you aren't expected to do it on your own. You know, scroll forward to perimenopause, which is, well, let's just call it menopause. You kind of, it can hit you any time from your late 30s through to your mid 50s and most commonly around about 50. But any time before that, you know, nobody talks about the symptoms apart from hot flushes. You, you kind of, everybody's got their head in the sand about it because like who wants to age? Like you, you were saying that like you don't hear a lot from women over 40 and certainly not over 50. It's like women vanish down some kind of hole between 40 and maybe 70 it's like if you google older women you literally will get a stand stair lift there is no you know google doesn't make any distinction between old women and, and there's young women there's women who have children and then there's old women those women in the middle are, are just gone so for me personally when I was about 46 I had massive crisis of confidence I mean massive I can't honestly say I haven't had mental health issues anyway I mean I've suffered from depression and break uh, had a couple of breakdowns throughout my career so I knew what that felt like but it was like nothing that I'd experienced before crippling anxiety um you know the occasional howling rage out of nowhere and I didn't know that those things were associated with menopause you know, I just thought, well, I'm not having hot flushes and I'm not old enough. And and that was kind of it. And it was only a couple of years later when I did start having hot flushes that I thought, oh, 
you know, maybe I, th- this is what this is. And then I, then I went and because I've had a lot of um, gynecological problems through my life, I was lucky enough, lucky enough to have a private gynecologist. And so instead of having to then start the process of going through GPs who bat you away with antidepressants, generalising, but that's a very common story, um, I was able to go to a gynaecologist who said to me, yeah, this is, this is what's happening. And, it, you know, and we talked through the options of what we could do about it if, if I wanted to do anything about it, which I did. I was like, give me the drugs. I want all the drugs. And I you will <laughs> prize my HRT out of my cold, dead hands, basically. But I just didn't have a clue what was happening to me. And that's the wake up call. It's like 51.98% of the population is going to experience this. And we, we don't tell them about it. And furthermore, not only do we not tell them about it, we, we vanish the women that it happens to. So, you know, I don't know going, how, how COVID has affected this, but certainly if you go into any media office that I went into before COVID, I was far and away the oldest woman in the room. Far and away. So if you can't look up and see a path, then of course you're going to be scared of that. Of course you're going to think, oh, you know, it's like somebody I spoke to on The Shift described it as like Logan's Run, you know, the movie where, you know, you get to 30 and then you're sent off. <laughs> you just vanish, you're vanished. And that that's a bit what it's like. And it's if we just approached it as it's like, an, it is like a second puberty, kind of in reverse. What does that look like? How do we manage that? And how do we make that, just another rite of passage. So instead of being, oh no, I'm going grey, I've got back fat, you know, I'm hot all the time, I've got brain fog, I'm, I'm history. And then you're treated like that at work as well. So I'm making it sound great, aren't I? It is great, I promise. It's just shit before it's great. But that's the thing, you know, I'm thinking of one of the only examples, which is also an, one of the only nuanced examples I've seen of... <laughs> representation of the experience of menopause and it's i mean i feel it feels awful saying this have you seen i mean it's my favorite cartoon is called big mouth it's all about puberty but they're one of the characters they go through menopause i did send it to my mum when she started going through menopause because there's this character called the menopause banshee who at first is saying all of the kind of stuff going like hot flashes it's coming but then has this really beautiful moment where she turns up on a moped and she's like your life is just beginning you can have yes. sex without protection. You can do yes. this. You are free. Like you don't, you have released the shackles of what was holding you back before. And that, I think if we can look at menopause in that way, like you said, I think it's a really, can be a really beautiful rite of passage for women and should be celebrated in that way. Um, maybe we'll, we'll link to the menopause banshee. I know that does not sound good, but I <laughs> yeah, promise no, it's too. Really good. I, I'm, 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 I'm here for the menopause banshees. Certainly. She's my hero, truly. Um, but I think this leads on really nicely to what do you actually think would help women going through the shift and accepting their changing bodies? Oh, God. Well, I mean, <laughs> um, enormous social change in the end of the patriarchy, obviously, but mm-hmm. failing yes. that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually like the first port of call for yeah, fixing everything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I felt like this was a podcast where I was able to say that. Whereas, you know, some people like you say, say the word patriarchy and you can literally see everybody's faces closed down and and I, I get that you know but I also that, cowards but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally but um I mean I, I think first and foremost talking about it and visibility you know it's 
when you're talking about any kind of, and you know, I really don't want to say the word minority because in all cases, minority is not the right word and it's certainly not the right word for 52% of the population. But in, in, in all cases, whether you're differently abled or LGBTQ plus or black or brown or a woman over 40 of any of any hue but you know if it's think it's bad being a woman over 40 who's white and be try being a woman over 40 who's black you know and then you you're really up against it but in any of those situations you truly cannot be what you cannot see and I think you know like I said if you're a woman of 30 in an office thinking you know what's next for me and all you see is oblivion then, you know, that's not going to inspire you. If there's an amazing woman called Karen Arthur who started a movement called Menopause Wealth Black and she, I spoke to her on, I think, the second series of the podcast and she, I mean, she was the same. She was like, I just didn't know what was happening to me. And furthermore, if you think it's bad being a, a white woman experiencing menopause and you Google Google menopause and you get the menopausal, the kind of photo equivalent of, you know, woman laughing at salad you you literally you get this kind of like swan swanier gray-haired woman you know either looking really really sad out the window or 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 laughing as she drinks a smoothie and and that's it and in all cases those women are white so it's I think it's it's about visibility it's about talking about it I've been accused by several people of kind of of reducing women to their sex by always asking women about menopause um, on the podcast. And to me, I just think that's absolutely missing the point because, you know, yes, they've all achieved lots of other things and that's why they're on the podcast and we will have talked about that already. But I think if you've got Michelle Obama and Bernadine Evaristo and Nicola Sturgeon and, you know, Angela Merkel talking about their experience of menopause, then all of a sudden it just becomes a normal thing, not a thing to hide, not a, you know, your generation of young women have been a total inspiration to me because, you know, my generation of women went through their working life with the tampon shoved up their sleeve to go to the loo, even in all female offices. And, you know, then your generation of women are like, fuck that, you know, you know we have periods, look, here's the blood. And, and that really made me think, do you know what? When those young women approach menopause, provided they're not blindsided in the way we were, it's going to be a whole other ball game. And that's why should we wait for them to do that work? You know, we need to talk about it and we need to, you know, celebrate the bits that can be celebrated and help people get to the place where they do feel good about it. Well, you know, and I think I'm so grateful to you for doing this work because you have created this incredible place of conversation around menopause that we haven't really had previously or not that I could think of. And, uh, you know, we've spoken about this, but, you know, the best way to combat shame or anxiety is to get it out in the open and to, you know, that is the easiest way to make yourself feel like a person again is to normalise the things you're experiencing. And, yeah, I'm just very grateful that you're doing what you do. Yeah, it's all well and good being like, oh, why are we even talking about this? But in, whilst there is so much societal shame and illusion around this whole process, we can't just, it doesn't serve anyone to ignore it happening. I think, I don't know, we may be at a point down the line where it doesn't feel as necessary, but it feels necessary right now because we don't know 
as much about it. It feels you feel blindsided as, as you're talking about and people feel very alone and that doesn't serve anyone. transition us a little bit because Sam you mentioned in in your intro you've you've had a really and continue to have a a really interesting career but thinking of your career previous with being an editor-in-chief of some of the kind of really well-known women's magazines I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on that and reflections now looking back and looking back at that time and what was it like and I think we talk so much about women's magazines and body image and we're normally like oh women's magazines the worst um it definitely have that like one one rap um but yeah just be very curious to hear what what your reflections are looking back and what maybe people who don't work in media like myself maybe don't know about that that world and what that was like and how it felt at the time oh god <laughs> how long have you got i mean do i think we did a perfect job no did we try to do it make it better than it was yes but like to as yoda says you know <laughs> do or do not <laughs> there is no try i mean do you know what I think I went into editing magazines at a point, the magazine heyday was starting to pass. That would probably have been the 80s, but there was still that point where magazines were all about aspiration. It was a little bit easier on teenage magazines because, you know, to be honest, the management didn't pay very much attention to us because we didn't make very much money. We made money by, you didn't make a lot of money from advertising as a teenage magazine or, or your money was made by selling to the audience and so you kind of had that space to say we're giving that we're giving the kids what they want you know and that if we do that we'll be successful so the, there was a bit more room to do what you thought was the right thing you know to we had at the point I was editing just 17 we had there was a load of fuss with you know where teenage magazines were getting to bl- blame for teenage pregnancies and God knows what else. So, you know, that was a media firestorm that was created out of nothing, really. And the role of teen, we saw the role of teenage magazines was to uh, as being like a, a, a good friend or a big sister and having a laugh. And so we tried to kind of answer the questions that came in. I mean, it was, that's what it was back in the day. I mean, it was before your time. Um, you know, it was still post bags and, you know, it, it it, we, but we were getting sacks of problem problems every week and, you know, and those were around. They were probably the same as they, well, I imagine it's worse now because of because of smartphones. But, you know, they were like, my boyfriend says I don't love him if I won't have sex with him. You know, my boyfriend says I'll still be a virgin if I let him do it up my bum. You know, all of those kind of things that we were not allowed to, to answer with out permission, if you like, or unofficial permission from the magazine, the teenage magazine body that had been set up to rule us because we were naughty. And so it was a kind of a transition. It was a weird transition for me going from that world, the kind of the just 17 teenage world, where you could usually find a way, you could like be naughty and get away with it, into the kind of glossy world where 
if even if you sell, sold a lot, you were still beholden to the advertisers. And that's, you know, that's a, it's difficult and it's difficult. It's still difficult now. And you can see it on the internet all of the time because the media is a business. If it can't financially stay afloat, then it can't exist anymore. But that has become, uh, there had become accepted ways of doing things. So there was accepted wisdom that black women didn't sell on the cover of magazines. Um, and that has obviously gone, but I would say only recently, only in the last, if you look back, I mean, I bought a handful of magazines a few weeks ago and four of, and just randomly picked them off the shelf. And four of the five magazines that I bought had a black woman on the cover. And I was only when I put them down, I thought, wow, that just would never have happened. I think even two years ago, but certainly not 15 years ago. So there was, there were all these received wisdoms, you know, I, 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 hands up, I, I didn't break those received wisdoms. We did kind of campaigning things as long as you didn't like draw anyone's attention to them, you know, whilst Cosmopolitan and, and Red were very successful under my leadership, for want of a, better, of a better way of putting them. I think with hindsight, I wish that we had done more to fight the status quo. But at the same time, I always had an eye on my job. You know, to be honest, and that to a certain extent, and this is not an excuse, you're only as good as your last. I sound terribly defensive, don't I? Terribly defensive. I mean, I remember there was one incident when it was probably we were actively on red going through a process of pulling back on on retouching and, you know, trying not to use such skinny models. But that was not it didn't always work. You know, and always trying to use older models because the old audience was older. But we had a one incident that really sticks out in my mind is we had shot an incredible uh, woman, British, high profile, not skinny. Um, we'd shot her for a cover. We'd had her on the cover before. We knew that she would sell. She was amazing. The audience loved her. Everybody loved her. And when the pictures came in, we'd used a new photographer, an American guy. When the pictures came in, Oh my God, I swear he had shaved three sizes of her body. And we were like, who is this? What what have you done? And he said, yeah, don't she? Don't you think she looks great? And we were like, no. No, what are you, you know, this, what have you done? Put her back. And we had to have the most enormous row with him to get her put back to her former state, which was amazing. You know, not a, a, certainly a, not an American size two or four by any stretch of the imagination, but also, you know, a, a, and smaller than the average British woman. And it was that was a moment for me where I just thought, you know, this is not enough because the problem, it's not just a historical problem of aspiration versus reality. And we were just at the point of starting to see that, you know, Twitter had been probably going, when did Twitter start? 2009. So social media had been going long enough for people to get a voice. And the received wisdom that magazines were all about aspiration was starting to be eroded, that, they, you know, finally in, in meetings, people were talking about the aspiration gap. You know, and I remember we did an exercise where we tore the ads, the ad section off the front of Red because Red was a rare magazine that sold a lot of copies 
and sold a lot of ads. And so it was very profitable at one point. But so we gave a bunch of women the magazine that started with the features without the ads and another bunch of women, the whole magazine. And the reaction, as you'd expect, you know, it's not rocket science from those two groups of women was so different because the women who got the magazine without the 30 pages of ads at the front loved it. And the women who got the magazine with the ads were alienated by it. And, you know, that's obvious to any reader. But, you know, the answer to that being raised in any meeting for my entire career was, well, how do they think we keep it afloat? And that's true. I mean, it is true. There's no, there's no denying that. But at the same time, what I love about what I'm seeing happening now, not the death of magazines, of course, but the, the magazines that are able, are able to keep it afloat and are seeing their covers as there to make waves, not sell. Because, you know, when I was editing magazines, it was we had to get it off the, you know, you had to get someone to pick it up off the newsstand. And the way to do that was seen to be to play it safe. Whereas now, that's not, it's all, it doesn't seem like magazine editors are under as much pressure to make that cover sell. And they can all do digital covers now. So it's absolutely wonderful to see Celeste Barber on the cover of InStyle, to see what Edward Enninfall is doing on Vogue, you know, to see Michaela Cole on the cover of Elle. I mean, all those things, I just can't Im imagine them having happened. I would say that in nearly every case, with the exception of Lizzo on American Vogue, uh, on British Vogue, but even then she was only on a very tiny bit of the print run, the diverse covers are still all, they're still all skinny. And it's the same with older women. When you see older women in, in ads, you know, whether it be it a fashion ad or a yogurt ad or a hair ad, they're still all skinny. They're still Joan Didion. They are not, you know, they're not even a normal size. And I think that, you know, body image, much as the Gen Z kind of body positivity movement on, on social media is incredibly positive, I don't think it's breaking out of that generation. Maybe young millennial, but older millennial Gen X is still... And in fact, the women, a lot of the women I spoke to for the Shift book found body positivity a bit intimidating. Felt like, oh, oh, it's just another pressure, you know? This is something we found so much. We've had older women ask if this is something for them, if this is something that they can be included in, as well as we often talk about body neutrality as a much more, um, I know, a much less daunting way into it of going, you don't have to constantly be in a bikini and shouting about how much you love yourself. Not that that is wonderful if you feel the energy to do that, but it's very daunting. Like especially from women in your generation who have been bombarded from all sides for such a long time with messages to hate yourself. Imagine then being told to love yourself overnight by a group of children. It's like, oh, fuck off. Like, I'm sure that's yeah. really irritating. Yeah. And I, but I think it's, it's interesting as well because it's also thinking what body positivity is and really thinking about that as a social justice movement as opposed yeah. to something being like telling people what to do. I think also that, that framing can help and Sam I just want to go back and say thank you so much for sharing all of those reflections we know we did put you like a little bit in the hot seat so I know you, you said about sounding defensive but I think it's really useful to help understand kind of what happened then and I do think we were in a different cultural time when we're thinking yeah I think there's been lots of cultural shifts and I think magazines are not the only way of determining culture right like they 
share exactly. views they and don't ideas. Make culture. No, That's, right. Yeah. So it's like the there reflection are, of it. There are other social factors, and to your point about still having thin people as the cover on magazines that's again a reflection on how we view bodies and weight in society and how we value bodies and weight and think about weight so i think it's it's thinking about it in the, in these contexts and and it's not just one person or one group of people it's how all of these different forces come into play so i think it's adding that level of like complexity and nuance to these conversations i think is really useful and I guess one follow-up question I had when you're talking about all of these things, and so you do have, like, a, I really like the phrase that you're using in terms of received wisdom. Did you feel like working, because I can't imagine what it might have been like working in a space like that, did you feel under a lot of pressure um, to look a certain way or present in a certain way whilst you were there? Um, yes, but I don't really... <sighs> Some of it was about magazines and, and certainly about the fashion industry. But I have felt that way. To go right back to the beginning of the conversation, really, I have felt that I didn't look right since I was very small. You know, I wasn't a cute, skinny little blonde girl um, in a sea of little blonde girls. You know, um, I had... Uh, issues around disorders, eating in my teens. And then I embraced goth in a big way. And no, there are no pictures and I will not be sharing them. <laughs> um, because, that, you know, I see now, you know, that that was just a way of saying, well, I can't look like that. You know, I can't look like the, the pretty blonde princesses. So I'm going to look at the complete opposite, much to my poor mum's chagrin. And then, I, uh, you know, and then... I went into magazines and I worked in weeklies before, which is a very different experience altogether, before moving into editing and, and Just 17. But certainly once I was on Company, Cosmo and then Red and I was engaging with the fashion industry through my work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all I can say. It's, yeah. um, it's what we would imagine. A lot, a lot of fashion journalists feel similarly, you know, if you talk to, especially, particularly journalists like me who have become editors of magazines that engage with the fashion industry or are fashion magazines, because you haven't gone up through the fashion industry and you haven't got that, you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid in the same way. So I was listening to your, and I'm sure everybody references this episode, but I was listening to your interview with Lena um, yesterday and talk and listening to her talking about that period in her life when she was a size four and she could fit into all the samples. And I remember that really vividly when she was, you know, on the cover of American Vogue, looking, looking fabulous, you know, dying, in, dying inside. Um, and that's a bit how it felt. And it, particularly around, I mean, I, I know this sounds, can sound a bit my diamond shoes are too tight, but I particularly <laughs> hated doing the shows, you know. And yes, it's very privileged and, oh, Poor you, you had to go, they paid you to go to Paris and Milan and sit in the front row. And of course, but, you know, people starve themselves before before they go. You know, I worked with people who ate nothing but kale for two weeks before they went so they could get into sample sizes. I mean, you know, and to begin with, I tried to just go and be myself. And then I realised that I would better be able to get through it emotionally um, just by 
dressing as one of them, you know. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, again, I really don't subscribe to the blaming the fashion industry for everything because I think they, they do a lot of good as well. But, you know, the truth is if people only make samples in a size four, models are never going to be allowed to be bigger than a size four. And then the the whole thing, you know, like Lena's saying about the rail being full of Marc Jacobs because she'd always been too big for Marc Jacobs before. And that's, you know, that, that there is the problem. And then that leads on to, you know, you hit your 40s, you're probably like, maybe, you know, you're trained to be worried about aging anyway. Your body starts to change and, you know, your body is just another way that you're valued as a young woman. So, you know, you have to look right, you know, you're, you're valued on your looks and your biology and, you know, your biological ability or not, <laughs> in my case. Um, and then you hit this stage and you're and the reality is your body does start to change, even on HRT, even, you know, doing yoga or whatever it is you choose to do. Your body does start to change and you are, you know, if you ever were that girl, you are no longer that girl. And that is just a matter of fact. And it's, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But everything up to that point has trained you that it does. And so, you know, I think it's really I mean, all these things tap into each other, don't you? Diversity of body size, diversity of age, diversity of skin colour, diversity of sexuality, and they're all part and parcel of a thing. And one dealing with one thing isn't going to going to sort out the others. But you know, talking about it, I think there's a lot of work to do. And what worries me a bit is that you know people are starting to talk about menopause a bit more, as they are starting to talk about all kinds of diversities a bit more but those what comes up tends to go down in our in the world that we live in and that's got even worse social media because it goes up it becomes a talking point much more quickly and then it vanishes much more quickly and it you know it can't because it's 52 percent of the population's lives yeah and well I just have to say Sam I think it's been so it's been so useful speaking with you and hearing about all your experiences and that whole thing of it doesn't matter and having that realisation in your 40s or 50s, that how do we fast track that realisation that it doesn't matter? And, and having that awareness of like, actually, you know what, you can unsubscribe to some of these pressures that are out there. Something that we love to ask all of our guests is, what do you do to look after yourself and generally feel good in your body? And I know just from listening to the shift, there's a lot of um, cold water swimming that goes on with, with some of your guests. Not but in my you, life. But <laughs> I was wondering, is that is that something that you do also? Or yeah, but what, oh, generally, what do you do? What God, makes no. you feel good? Do you know what? I used to, swimming was probably the only sport I ever was any good at. And then I stopped around about 15, which is the age that a lot of young women stop doing sport, 14 or 15. Because there was swimming, there was my hair, there was boys, and there were exams and something had to give. And obviously it was swimming. the exercise. Obviously. <laughs> but though I think you know all about cold water swimmers because every time you meet a cold swimmer, they tell you mm. that cold water swimmer, they tell you they're a cold water swimmer. <laughs> I'm not very good at looking after myself, in in all honesty. I um I walk a lot and I'm lucky to live in a city. Edinburgh, which has so much potential for that. You know, you're never more than 15 minutes from the sea or a mountain or a big bit of open space. So, you know, I walk and listen to podcasts. I walk to get my head straight. I, you know, I walk 
really that's that's all I do I every so often I dabble with some exercise and that usually lasts long enough for me to put a hundred quid in to buy classes and then only book two you know and I can't tell you how many times I've done that Um, (laughs) I really admire anybody who loves yoga I mean my literary agent absolutely loves yoga and is fully committed to it um I just I just can't what do you do Ooh. Either of you, both of you. Both. Well, I think that, well, just on the yoga, I think you don't have, like, knowing that it's not for you, it's not, everyone doesn't, everyone doesn't have to, I don't do yoga, I don't think you, it, it's it's a necessity. I think you can do lots of different things. I also love a long walk, love dancing around. I think particularly it's been interesting reevaluating the, what do you do for yourself through the pandemic and lockdown and I think there are like how can you disengage and like relax feel good in your body honey has lots I have so, I'm like <laughs> my <laughs> life is just built around coping mechanisms <laughs> like, <nice ones. laughs> I'm writing um, them all down yeah. I love a hot bath I love a hot bath and then to slather myself in a delicious smelling body lotion like a lady in a film um it's are you the really daytime bather oh I, I mean that's the most indul- a daytime bath I'm like who am I? Like, it's heaven. But usually I'm a nighttime bather. No, but a daytime bath has been... That's been a revolution from the working from home situation. Because normally I wouldn't be working from home, but ever since... It feels so decadent. Oh, it's it? incredible. Oh, my God, I'm in the it's bath. In, it's incredible. It's I really I feel like I'm like Marie Antoinette or something. It's unbelievable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I cannot tell you how much... It's just been such a joy speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, what can we and our listeners do to support you and your work oh well listen to podcasts obviously I mean I say that flippantly but I do think you know the more I mean yes it's about talking about life over 40 or life over 39 and a half I think the youngest guess was but I do think that the more women in their 20s and 30s listen to women I mean my oldest guest so far is 80 I think yeah, in fact, Isabel, listen to the Isabel Allende episode. I love that because episode. She, oh my God, she is amazing. I want to be her when I grow up. And I just think, don't write off older women. I mean, I have certainly worked in spaces with younger women where I have felt dismissed. And I probably did that myself as well. When I was in my 20s and 30s, I probably was a bit like, what do you know? Um, but I think, yeah, listen to, if you do anything for me, listen to one, one episode, any episode, and just, I hope that that will give you some, some sense that, you know, life can be really great over, over 40, you know, certainly over 50. And truly, I am 55, and I've said that more than once this podcast, um, and, and I love it. I love, apart from right now, because I'm four weeks into COVID, but I, I love being in my 50s, and I feel freer Truly, I feel freer than I ever have. And I don't feel, I mean, yeah, I might dodge past the mirror occasionally or look at a selfie and go, oh my God, do I really look like that? But on the whole, that used to be an everyday occurrence for me. I went through my life thinking that I didn't look right or I wasn't enough or, and I don't feel like that anymore. And one thing I've really noticed, I'm kind of 50 something episodes now into the shift. Almost every woman I've spoken to has said some version of that, has said, you know, the, the famous Nora Ephron quote, I wish I'd worn a bikini every day of, I, of the year I was 26. But it's not just that. I think it's Marion Keyes says, you are beautiful now. 
And I think it's it's kind of uplifting and sad at the same time that every woman I've spoken to over 40 has said, don't make the mistake I made. Don't look in the mirror and think, I'm so fat, I'm so plain, I'm so ugly. Oh my God, is that a wrinkle? Because you know what? Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And and they're coming, you know, and it's they're fine. They're great. You know, and I think that's whether you are 25 thinking you're not thin enough or pretty enough or 35 or even 45 or even 55, you know, you will never be more beautiful than you are now. And I think that's such an important message to remember. So did that ask the question or did I take 10 minutes to say a one minute answer? That's a beautiful note to end on. Yeah, thank you so much, Thank Sam. you for having me so much. I love, love doing it. What a woman. I am obsessed with Sam Baker. I mean, can we get her back on the podcast ASAP? Please. <laughs> Please. And the fact that Sam knew my parents, like, from the industry when my mum was a journalist, I'm like, oh, I just love her. She's great. So, on a more serious note... During the, yeah, <laughs> let's let's get back to business now, very serious. During the interview, you mentioned that there's a little slither of research looking at body image and eating disorders among women in mid and later life. I would love if you could talk us through some of the key findings. Sure, of course. And starting with that disclaimer, as I mean mm-hmm. to go on, um, <laughs> I should probably do each time. These noodles are for educational purposes. I'm not an eating disorder clinician and... It's probably also worth stating that most of my work is focused on body image in adolescence. So body image and eating disorders in mid and later life is not my specialist area, but I found a couple of good papers and would love to talk them through as we go through. And we can definitely go into these in more depth on the Patreon. That's the thing, because with the Patreon, which you should subscribe to, I've said this before, it costs as much as a very affordable cup of coffee. But, like, not the kind of, like, avocado toast millennial, like, you'll be bankrupt if you get a cup of coffee, like a very affordable <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> so do check it out. But we can have much more candid conversations on the Patreon because it is a safer space. So we are a lot more honest, a lot more brutal. We are spilling the tea. We are having the hard conversation. So get over there. And here's some things that might be potentially too risque for the main pod. Oh, love, love that. Love that. Sign me up. I know. I might have to opt into my own podcast. Um, So talk me through this research. I'm very interested to hear because I was going to say quickly, kind of on the flip side of the conversation we had with Ashley the other day, I think there's a lot of mystery around what happens to your body in later life as women. And I think Mm. it's also just like, just in terms of research and around women's health in general, like I feel like, we are kept in the dark more often than not. So I'm very excited to hear what you are bringing to me today. Yeah, completely, completely agree with that. So, and as I said in the conversation with Sam, like there's just like a sliver of research that's looking at body image and eating disorders among women in mid and later life in comparison to adolescents and young college age adults, because that's pretty much psychology research for you more broadly yeah. we always say like what was the thing we were like you know what uni students are always available there's always uni students available for research and you can get course credit right so you can get course credit exactly. and then you have to think who is that demographic at undergrad psychology university courses it's white middle class a lot of the research you have to look at who the findings are based on who's telling and sharing their experience so then then you can think like Okay, how far can we extrapolate this? Yes. Um, (laughs) 
you know, sometimes, sometimes not so much. Anyway, so there's, there's essentially there's a sliver of this research, but for me at least, there's compelling evidence that women in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond experience negative body image, they experience disordered eating and eating disorders. And one review paper that I found from 2019, published in Current Psychiatry Reports, led by Dr. Karen Samuels, concludes, and this is a quote, age doesn't immunise women from body image, preoccupation, weight and shape concerns, disordered eating and eating disorders. So essentially it's like it's not like a huge protective factor that as you get older you're just suddenly going to not experience any of these things. Well which makes complete sense as well because why would all the pressures that you faced your whole life vanish when you pass a certain age? And if anything I think you're even more vulnerable because there's less representation of women past their 40s. So there's less guidance of how to get through that time and how to deal with the challenges that you're facing. Completely. And then like to then think about like to debunk that myth that like these like body image concerns are like a trivial like teenage girl yeah. issue. Like we know so one <laughs> we know <laughs> um so many problems with that. Um but focusing on on women and older women, we know that older women experience negative body image and then a study actually published last year, so twenty twenty one in the Journal of Women and Aging from a team in the US led by Dr. Lisa Smith-Capella found that in this like older women sample that weight and shape concerns were correlating with negative mood, reduced enjoyment of physical activity, worse quality of sleep, worse quality of life. So all of the things that we talk about with younger audiences that go to show that body image is an important issue that impacts people's well-being more broadly that's we're still seeing exactly the same patterns in an older sample of women and um, obviously the study in particular is like correlational so we can't draw those causal conclusions but it's still interesting and it's still just like reinforcing the pattern that we see in other demographics yeah that's so interesting yeah so very interesting very useful and then going back to the review that i mentioned above when we're focusing on eating disorders they describe three different groups in relation to how eating disorders in women in midlife manifest, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, and so how they categorise it, you've got this first group, which includes adult women who have experienced symptoms of disordered eating throughout their lives, so from adolescence into later life. So it's like a consistent pattern throughout their life that it's just something that's like an undercurrent in like their experience it's followed them from every stage as well yes yeah so it's just this like undercurrent that they are engaging in disordered eating behaviors and cognitions we have this second group where we have adult women who have experienced an eating disorder in their teens or 20s but then who have recovered either partially or fully there's lots of different definitions and conceptualizations of recovery but who to some degree have recovered and then relapse in later life and that's often following some kind of trigger some big major life events so like a bereavement like a divorce something can maybe bring that eating disorder those eating disorder patterns back so we see that group and then the third group and this seems to be the the least common when we're thinking about eating disorders in women in midlife is when adult women have an eating disorder and experience an eating disorder for the first time in later life. So they have that later onset. So they haven't got a history of recognised symptoms that's been identified in their in their teens, 20s, 30s even. And that's, that's quite interesting. And as I say, not very common because what we see in a lot of the literature is most people across the spectrum of eating disorders that is that onset is typically in like the teenage years or like early 20s. 
to give an example, I was just having a look through to see if there's any like contemporary research, contemporary evidence on eating disorders in women in mid or later life. So I thought it'd be good to give a contemporary example of some research that has come out looking at eating disorders in mid or later life. And so this work is focused on women and it's quite common to see as a a quick caveat that a lot of research focuses, tries to constrain some factors. So in this study, they're constraining gender. So they're just looking at women on the basis of the idea that women are at higher risk of eating disorders. So not every study can be the full gamut of inclusion in all of these things but so a quick side note but anyway it's a good it's a good paper so paper published in 2017 led by Dr Nadia McCarley. Nadia and her team look at a community sample of over five and a half thousand women in the UK so it's based on the ALSPAC data which is this like massive longitudinal like cohort data set which a lot of studies are based on it's a really good source of data for a lot of these studies Mm. so anyway they found in this community sample of women who I think are in their like 40s 50s that 3.6 percent meet the criteria for an eating disorder in the past 12 months with anorexia being the least common occurrence of eating disorders in that group then they look at lifetime eating disorders so have have these women ever experienced an eating disorder and they find that 15 like just over 15 percent of these women have met the criteria for a lifetime eating disorder which is which is high right like that's like 15 percent is like a lot of like it's a lot of people um and then something that really stood out to me in this paper is that only 27 like just over 27 percent of these women in midlife so in like in like 40s 50s who met this criteria for DSM-5, so like kind of the, the classified eating disorders, received treatment or sought help at any time in their lives. The majority have not received help, wow. right? The majority have not received help. They've not received support. So over 70% have not sought help. They've not received help. That's staggering. No, and it, it, it makes you think of how many kind of women in midlife are going through this thing alone and thinking that they are alone in this when it's actually a very common thing. Right, completely. And like they conclude at the end by saying like by the time women are getting to like that midlife stage, you've got a significant proportion of women who have, who have experienced an eating disorder, who may still be experiencing an eating disorder. And so such a small percentage relatively of these women are accessing support and healthcare and I think, and I think a a big part of that is this stigma around it being like a young person's illness. Well, it's like absolutely not. Well, also, and I think we actually spoke a bit about this with Bryony, but like I think those things do stay with you in a big way. Mm-hmm. Recovery, I think, is kind of slightly a lifetime endeavor of like managing yourself and managing your thought patterns. And you know, I I don't want to speak too broadly because it's so different for everybody. But I think it's you know it's so normal, especially given the society we live in, to feel these pressures and to feel, you know, no one is alone in experiencing these things. Right, that's it. You're not alone and you're. it's never too late to seek help, right? Like, it's never exactly. too too late. You can turn things around. You can change thoughts, behaviours, patterns at whatever stage. Like, doesn't matter how long you've, you've had them for. So I'd love if we could bring it back to the shift, uh, the change, uh, menopause. If you could talk to me a bit about the link to body image and menopause, I'd love to know some more about that. Yeah, that's great. And I think really nice to like tie it back into to the conversation and the conversation that we had with Sam. So again, not masses out there on this, but some researchers have written and I'm 
half quoting, half paraphrasing, but have written that menopause like puberty may represent a window of vulnerability to negative body image and eating disorders, uh, likely because of changes in hormone function, body composition and conceptions of womanhood as, as people are going through that life stage. And then others have also highlighted that menopause is a unique risk factor for body dissatisfaction for middle-aged women. So it's something that because of those changes, those like hormonal changes, body composition changes, and how women are positioned in society. So it's definitely like considered a risk factor, but there's just not as much evidence or like research really digging in. And like, we really would like to see that like longitudinal research that's following women over time to see, okay, how, what's their body image like, pre-men- like pre-menopause, going through all of these different stages, and then how they come out the other side almost when it comes to body image but I I don't know maybe that's out there but I haven't I haven't seen it I haven't read that paper so if anyone's listening and knows of that paper please send it my way (laughs) no that that does sound exactly (laughs) what we need it's interesting as well because people seem and we've definitely covered this before but people are so much more predisposed to negative body image in times when you're vulnerable when you're going through a shift so puberty after you've had a baby before you've had a baby uh menopause all of these kind of times of transition in your body it's just again it's it all comes down to society being shit and capitalism being shit but anyway yeah well no but, that, but that's that's exactly it and I don't even know if there's that much more, more to say than that because I think <laughs> as your body changes and it's kind of moving away from quote society's idea and ideal standard for women so you're getting older your skin is becoming less elastic like uh you you have lines on your face your body composition is different there's like I don't know all the technicalities, but the reduction in estrogen during that menopause transition leads to an increase in like body fat mass. I think that is something that happens. Again, I'm not an expert in it, but that's what I have read. And so your body shape changes and like your weight distribution changes. And again, that's moving you or can be moving you away from quote society's ideals. So there's just that added pressure and like that pressure of like they're not being seen or noticed and so it's like very complicated I was just gonna well, especially because we do live in a we live in a society that is so um fixated on youth and the next young ingenue and oh my god can you believe this new singer is only 14 and she's doing that and you're like oh my god you know I think it's and then couple that with the feeling of women past 40 feeling invisible you've got a perfect storm of this vulnerable period of like well where's my worth because women have been taught for so long that their worth is tied up in how they look and their age and all of these qualities that actually kind of mean very little in the grand yeah, scheme of things yeah that's completely it and that's why things like 30 under 30 and like all of those things that we see and like I t- like touted mm-hmm. so much I was like we all need to put those in the bin because I think they're like yes I think we want to celebrate successful people and people who have I don't know who've done great things but it when it's made so arbitrary based on age and it's like because they're young there's you know it kind of I don't there's something about that that can make people feel weird frantic and like they're not doing things fast enough and it's like you are on your own path you achieve things at your own pace Vera Wang didn't design her first wedding dress until after 40 the man who invented (laughs) invented the man who wrote squid game was working on it for 10 years the guy who wrote white lotus he's in his 50s don't worry you've got time love that love that yeah I think always always good to remember and I think yeah being on your own path and I think 
just the final thing to say with all of this is like, yeah, we talk about some of these risk factors and like increased vulnerability to poor body image and disordered eating, but that's not a given. And so it doesn't have to be that way, right? So it's like, I think sometimes having that awareness and knowing that that could be like a a wobbly time for it to be like, okay, no, I'm going to resist. I'm going to work out how I'm going to buffer myself and like resist those society pressures. Like you don't have to, you can opt out. Yeah. Well, this is the thing of like, informing yourself and giving yourself the information is so empowering because it kind of gives you a literacy in your body and understanding what's happening and I think that means I don't know it just means that you are able to figure out the tools you need to tackle these if you are starting to feel these pressures and do you know do what you've got to do to feel good in your body always perfect Nadia that was such a gorgeous and delicious bowl of noodles um thank you so much of course anytime Thank you so much for listening to the Body Protest Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could rate, review, share and subscribe. You know what to do. And if you're left wanting more, why not check out our new Patreon for some exclusive bonus content. You can now also drop us an email at thebodyprotest at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by the sensational Daisy Grant and our dreamy music is by Eve Garland. And our new Knowledge Noodle jingle is by Zane Morris. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. Providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.